Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. And before we begin, I just want to take a quick moment and say hello to all the new subscribers. You guys are awesome. Your support means the world to me, and I know that there's no shortage of content out there, so it really does mean a lot that you've chosen to spend your time here. Now, whether you're tuning in while driving, if you have it on in the background while you work, or just relaxing, I want you to know that my commitment to bring you more of the content that you love and to do it with actual researched information is my goal. So thank you again for hitting that subscribe button and giving me a spot in your playlist. You are why I do what I do. Now, with that said, let's get on to today's episode, which is one of the most talked about hair-raising paranormal stories in existence today, the Enfield Poltergeist. Now, you might be skeptic or you might be a believer, and no matter your position, This story will have something for everyone, so buckle up. In the late 1970s, a family in England experienced some strange things happening in their home. Objects would move on their own, they would hear voices, and worst of all, the youngest daughter was especially victimized. It all happened at 284 Green Street in Enfield, England, just 30 minutes or so outside of London. The family, Peggy Hodgson, a 47-year-old divorced mom, and her four children, Margaret, 13, Janet, 12, John, 11, and Billy, 7, all lived in a three-bedroom council house which in England essentially means public housing. Now, the house was built in the 1920s, but it is during the time that the family lived there that it became a living hell. If you have ever read or will read the book, This House is Haunted, written by someone who was actually there, I want you to know that the author in the book uses different names for all members of the family, except for Janet. Now, Peggy Hodgson had four children to provide for, and she did the best she could. Margaret, which was her oldest daughter, is serious and sincere. And Janet, the 12-year-old, she was the extrovert. Now, John, the 11-year-old, he mainly stayed at a specialized boarding school, and he only came home for vacations and some weekends. And Billy, the youngest boy at seven years old, happened to have a significant speech impediment. Now, Peggy Hodgson's brother, John, and his wife, Sylvia, lived just down the street from the Hodgson family. John was a healthcare worker, and he and his wife had two children, Paul and Denise. Now, Peggy's family and John's family were very close and spent a lot of time together. Next door to the Hodgson's were the Nottinghams. There was Vic, who was in construction, and his wife, who was also named Peggy. Their son, Gary, is their adult son. Now, the Hodgson's and the Nottinghams had a close relationship as well. 
Vic would help out Peggy and her family whenever she needed it, since it wasn't always easy with her husband not being around. Now, ever since this case made headlines, it's caused quite a bit of controversy. But you decide for yourself, is it the scary thing that hides under your bed at night? Or is it a young girl pulling a prank on everyone? So grab your favorite blanket, maybe turn on a few more lights, and let's get into the story of the Enfield poltergeist. Now, before we begin, I want to do two things. And the first is that during this podcast, as you might have noticed when I was talking about everybody involved, there are two Peggy's, and that can get really confusing. So whenever you hear Peggy, this is the mother of the four children who live in the home that is the epicenter of the activity. I will call the neighbor Peggy just Peg, and she is the one who is married to Vic. Now, the second thing that I want to do is to try and define what a poltergeist is, which is easier said than done. The word is actually of German origins, and it essentially means noisy spirit. But in the paranormal world, a poltergeist is considered to be a type of ghost or supernatural entity that is capable of interacting with the real world. Now, what I mean by this is that an unknown force has the ability to knock on walls, knock on floors, move objects, throw things, or even make things levitate. These types of actions, though, have also been considered demonic in nature. Now, with that said, let's get on with the story. It all began one late summer evening in 1977. The kids had all gone to bed when Peggy heard a strange sound from Janet and Johnny's room. She went to go see what the noise was. Here's what Peggy had to say. There was some noise in the back bedroom, some shuffling, and I spent about an hour or more trying to locate the noise and switching the light on and off. It seemed to start when the light was off and then stop when the light was on. I know it sounds a bit silly, but I was trying to find out what it was. I was standing in the doorway while the kids were in bed. She couldn't figure it out, and so she decided to get the kids out of bed, all of the kids, and went next door to their neighbors, Vic and Peg. Now, as Peggy was explaining to her neighbor Peg and her husband Vic what had happened, Vic, along with his wife, Peggy Hodgson, and along with all four of her kids, they all went back to the Hodgson house to see if Vic could find the source of the problem. Now, Vic worked in the construction industry, and he just thought it might have something to do with the house itself. Now, according to Vic, All of a sudden, I could hear knocking, and I didn't know what it was, had no idea what it was. Just a strange knock on the wall. I went up the stairs, and as I went up the stairs, this knock followed me. I heard three knocks, three distinctive knocks on the wall, carried on up the stairs, went into the bedroom, the front bedroom, three knocks on the wall again. Strange, I thought, and I began to shake. I goes in the back bedroom, same thing again. The knocks followed me. Anyway, being in the building game, I thought, I've got to take a look around the house. I've got to be brave and try and find out what it is. So I checked outside, 
checked the pipes. It was nothing like that. It was a distinctive knock on the wall. I told Mrs. Hodgson, I said, I'm going to get my son, and we go up the stairs, and I go into the front bedroom. My son goes in the back bedroom, and we both get a distinctive knock. Not just one, but one in each room. We got a good shake on that. We were all frightened. So we go downstairs, and I said, Mrs. Hodgson, there's something definitely strange in your house, the best thing for us to do. You're coming to my house, and we'll phone the police. Anyway, we phoned the police up, and they said straight away, have you been drinking? We said no. Definitely have not been drinking. They said they couldn't come down tonight, and I let them know it was a mother and four children, and there's no father here. There's something very funny in the house, and someone's got to come down and see us. So, within about ten minutes to a quarter of an hour, two police constables show up and said they were going to take a look round and see what it is. One of them walks in the house, and all he hears as soon as he walks in is a knock. The other police constable, a female, is getting a little shaky, and she's turning white anyway. He goes up the stairs, and the knock follows him. That night there was Mrs. Hodgson, her four children, myself, my son and my wife's father, and the policeman. And as we were standing there, the children were sitting on a chair, and there was an only kitchen chair that moved across the room about nine or ten inches, something like that. It didn't move fast, but it didn't move slow, as if it were pulled across the room just a short way, and that's when the policewoman got out of there as quick as she could. The other policeman still left in the house, said, well, I don't know what it is, I can't see nothing, so I can't send anyone away, and off they went. And that was the last time we ever seen those two. We never did see them no more. That night, the family stayed with the Nottinghams. Now, Vic's wife, Peg, decided to try something else to help their neighbors. And what she did was phoned someone from the public housing unit to come and take a look at the house. Now, this person did come out the next day, but while they were there, nothing happened and they couldn't find anything wrong. Now, the Hodgson family stayed back in their home the following night, and Mrs. Hodgson, Peggy, decided that the family would all sleep in the living room together. Now, again, more activity happened, and according to Peg, Vic's wife... As soon as anything happened, the children were so scared and were just screaming and screaming, and so, of course, we had them here again. I phoned the police up again, and they did send someone else down but couldn't find anything either. About the third day after the activity had begun, Peggy had a bizarre incident with a chest of drawers. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a chest of drawers. It was quite old, and it's sort of shuffling along near the doorway, coming towards the open door. I saw it move, and I beckoned to Margaret, and she come out, and she said, it's moving. And I went to push it back. I was so scared, but I actually tried to push it back to see if it would move again, and it moved again. And the third time I pushed it back, and I was really petrified, because if you see a piece of furniture moving in the bedroom and nobody's touching it, it can be really terrifying. Anyway, the third time I tried to push it back, I couldn't move it. It was coming towards me. So I told the kids, you'd better get on downstairs if we're going to have this, because we're not going to have any sleep anyway. So we wound up downstairs and we all slept on chairs all night. Now, Peg Nottingham was fully aware of every incident happening to the Hodgson family since they had tried the police and others. 
she decided to try another tactic. So what she did was she called the Daily Mirror, and this is a well-known local paper, and she actually called them at midnight one night. And believe it or not, two and a half hours later, at 2.30 in the morning, Douglas Bentz, a reporter, and Graham Norris, a photographer, arrived. Now, no one was home at the Hodgson's, but they did find the family next door at the Nottingham's. Douglas Bentz and Graham Norris then went with the family, along with Vic and Peg and, of course, all the kids, and went with them into the Hodgson house. And according to Graham Norris... As soon as we entered the house, things started happening. Children's toy plastic bricks, marbles, bits and pieces started flying around the house. As I entered the front room, something, I think it was a toy brick, came from behind me very low down and very fast and hit the wall in front of me. With that, I walked straight to a corner and put my back to it so nothing could come from behind me and to watch what was happening. Everyone came into the room, I think there were 10 or 11 of us, and we were standing in the room and things just started flying around. The toy brick came very fast and very straight into the corner of the room. Nobody could have thrown or flicked or whatever that toy. Four or five pieces were thrown while I was there, and one of them struck me on the head. I had a lump on my forehead for four or five days afterwards. We were all slightly on edge. We all didn't know what we were going to see, I think, is the worrying thing. The men from the paper did leave that evening, but they promised to return. Now, that night, they had contacted a group called the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, and a member of this group came to the house the following day to the Hodgson house, and this member's name was Morris Gross. Now, this SPR group was actually established in 1882, and what they do is they study strange phenomena. It even included in its membership justices of the peace, members of parliament, the former prime minister, Arthur Balfour, Marie Curie, and more. But it also includes many people from every walk of life all over the world. Now, Morris gave his account as to what he had witnessed when he arrived. I found chaos. The whole family was congregated in the house together with the neighbors next door. And there were a lot of very, very frightened people there. So I got them into a little bit of order. And we sat down and we talked about what was happening and after we'd been talking for about 10 minutes or so, I began to realize that here we had a classic poltergeist case on our hands. They were in a very, very frightened state. I don't even think they were thinking about explanations. A poltergeist had been mentioned, I believe, by one of the newspaper men. So obviously this word was being banded about, but they didn't even know the real word. In fact, the children were calling it polka dice. They didn't even know the name, but I told them that it was really nothing to be frightened about. I told them it was probably the family themselves who were exerting this force. I didn't theorize too much, but I had to give them some explanation to calm everybody down. Now, this was Morris's first real case, and he was excited to learn more about what was happening. Now, Morris, he stayed at their home for two days, and nothing happened. He didn't doubt Peggy's story. I mean, the family was obviously terrified, but nothing had yet happened to him. So he left Peggy with instructions to write down every incident that occurred. 
She was to write down what time and where everyone was in the home at the time that it happened while he was gone. And he promised to return soon. And he did. This time, he brought with him George Fallows and again, Douglas Bentz, reporters for the Daily Mirror, along with Graham Norris, the original photographer who had come to the house along. And this time, though, they also brought David Thorpe, another photographer. They all stayed in the home with Peggy and her family, hoping to find proof and gather evidence. Now, by this time, Janet's brother, John, whom she had shared a room with, was back in boarding school. So Janet was alone in her room. That evening, at about 1 o'clock in the morning, about 1.15, everyone present heard a loud crash coming from Janet's room. When they got there, they noticed that the chair next to Janet's bed had moved four feet from its original location and was now upside down. Janet, at this sound, had woken up and she began to cry. She was scared to death. After she had calmed down and went back to sleep, only an hour had gone by when the same thing happened. This time, though, Janet didn't wake up. Now, both Morris and George checked to be sure that Janet really was asleep. When George tried to get her to respond by lifting her arm, she didn't move. He told Morris that it was like she was unconscious. Now, Morris had left the house for a few hours in order to attend a lecture at the SPR that he had booked months earlier. And while he was there, he requested help to everyone there help on this case that he was working on. An author by the name of Guy Playfair was also there attending the lecture. Now, after Morris had asked for help on the case, the only person who really came forward was Guy, but he wasn't really super sincere about it. Guy was familiar with these kinds of cases, and he did offer to help Morris if he really got stuck. Now, Morris had been gone from the Hodgson home for nearly a full 24 hours. While he was gone, Peggy had indeed provided him with some information that had happened while he was gone. Small toys, like marbles and building bricks, were still flying around the house. While the whole family was watching television, a drawer underneath the TV cabinet opened on its own. Everyone saw it, and it scared them all so bad that they again went over to the Nottinghams. After Morris had gathered the family from next door, they all again went back into the Hodgson home. He still had not witnessed anything with his own eyes. Now, once inside, it didn't take long, though, for the thing, whatever this thing was, to show itself. A marble went flying past his head. None of the kids could have done it. Next, the doorbell chimes began to move back and forth on their own. Peggy, who had gone to the restroom, came running out and said that there was a noise in the bathroom. So all of them, all the kids and Peggy and Morris, they all stood outside the bathroom door and listened. No sound came from anywhere until the door to the bathroom began to open and close on its own. 
This happened not once, but multiple times. At the same time, Morris felt a cold breeze go past him. Now, as Morris is trying to write down notes frantically, Margaret, the 13-year-old, had made her way to bed, and she passed the kitchen, where she then called for everybody to come look. On the floor was a glass half full of water just sitting there in the middle of the kitchen floor. Now, Janet, too, headed to bed, and as she walked into her room, a marble flew from somewhere and hit the door next to her. Two more marbles did the exact same thing. Each time, the marble would just hit the floor and stay there. They wouldn't roll or bounce. They just stopped. It was slowly becoming clear that Janet was the focus of the activity. But was she doing it herself, or was it something that was attached to her? So for an extra layer of safety for the Hodgson kids, uh, Peg's father, their next-door neighbors, Peg's father was at the Nottingham house one day, and he walked all of the kids into the Hodgson house just to be sure everything was okay. Before he had a chance to leave and head back next door, Janet yelled from her bedroom. When he went up there, he saw that her bedroom chair sat on top of the bedroom door leaning against the wall. It only took a small movement of the door to cause the chair to fall. Now, only a couple of days later, an article about what was happening in the home made the Daily Mirror. Now, this article, thankfully, didn't mention an address or even the names of those who were involved. However, someone else did see it. It was a producer for a popular nighttime radio program, and he tried to catch up with the article writer who happened to be George Fallows, and he did so by finding him at the police station where he was taking statements from the two police officers who had originally been at the Hodgson home. He asked if the family would consider being on his talk show. Now, remember, this is radio. Peggy agreed and neither asked for or received any money for doing so. I'm sure her hope was to get the problem fixed as quick as possible and what better way to do it than to let people know what was happening? So on the radio program, she spoke calmly and she told the news program exactly what had happened to her just that day. I was woken up this morning by a rattling noise and I didn't quite know what it was. I was going to get out of bed and investigate when Janet came in and said to me, Mum, it's jumping on the bed. But I think she must have meant it was moving the bed. Janet come in from school at a quarter to four, and when she come in, she went to the birdcage and sort of tapped on the cage of the budgie, and when she did that, the bell chimes hanging on the wall began to sway. Then she went out into the kitchen to get a cup of milk from the refrigerator. I followed her out there, standing behind her. She goes past the kitchen drawer, near the sink, and one of the drawers gradually comes out. She's drinking her milk, and she says, Ooh, look, Mum, the drawers come out. And she walks back to come out of the kitchen, and there's a cardboard box standing on the table, 
with some odd things in it, and that jumps from the tabletop into the center of the kitchen floor. And this I actually saw. Now, the author, the guy Playfair, who had sat next to Morris at the SPR lecture, uh, listened to the radio interview given by Peggy Hodgson, and he remembered telling Morris that if he needed any help to reach out. But he did know that at the time he didn't really sound sincere. It kept nagging at him, though. So what he did is he decided to give Morris a call and again offer his help. Morris said that, yes, he did need help. And so Guy Playfair, again, the author of the book, This House is Haunted, which would eventually be released in 1980, became involved in the case as well. Now, when Guy showed up on the scene, the case had been active for 12 days. Guy sat down and had a conversation with Peggy and talked with the kids that were there. Their living room had literally been turned into a studio of sorts with cameras and tripods, cables, everything else all over the place to try and capture this strange phenomenon. Here's what Guy had to say. I was intending on going up there, exposing the whole thing as a fraud, tell Morris to do his homework and such, and then go off on my holiday. That's what I wanted to do. But when I first went, I realized that everything Morris had told me was absolutely true. It was unmistakably a genuine case. And the reason I say that is the family concerned would have had to do a great deal of research to know what to do. If I wanted to fake a poltergeist, I could do a pretty good job because I've studied these things very carefully and I've read a lot of cases and talked to a lot of people. But this particular family, they haven't got a single book in the house except a Bible and some children's books and some popular magazines and they're not students of the paranormal. There are about 10-15 types of events which normally occur on poltergeist cases. All of them have occurred at Enfield. Poltergeist cases do follow recurrent patterns. Now Morris and Guy spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours with the Hodgson family. They listened to the family's accounts and they recorded the events as they occurred. In October, was when a woman by the name of Rosalind Morris, a reporter for the BBC, visited the family to get more on the story. Now, that night, while she was there, the family was trying to sleep in the front bedroom of the house, even though there were three bedrooms in the home. By that time, the whole family wanted to sleep together in the same room. At this point, John was away at boarding school. So in the house, it was Mrs. Peggy Hodgson, Margaret, Janet, and Billy. While they were all trying to sleep, Mrs. Hodgson's brother, John, and his family, including his kids, were on the landing with Rosalind now in the house. Guy was downstairs in the main living room, which just happened to be directly beneath the front bedroom where the entire family was sleeping. Around 10.30 that night, Rosalind and John and the whole family began to hear knocking sounds, which appeared to be coming from the floors and the walls in the upper part of the house. After the knocking started, everyone except for the Hodgson family went into the living room downstairs and they tried to determine where these sounds were coming from. As they're discussing the knocks, they heard a crash upstairs. 
Rosalind and Guy went running up to the bedroom to find out what had happened. It started off with knockings they kept on and on. The vibration in the bed was shocking. The bed seemed to be shaking. This bed, we're in. Then it slammed us over here. A toy cat was also thrown, as well as a box that was in the room. It seemed as though that every time someone mentioned something about the poltergeist, it would become active. Now, Rosalind heard about 30 knocking sounds in the course of around 15 minutes. At around 11.30, it all seemed to have stopped. Now, Graham Norris, the photographer for the Daily Mirror, had actually ended up spending about eight months in the house trying to get pictures of the events happening. And he had seen dozens, if not hundreds, of events with his own eyes. Whenever he tried to capture something, his equipment would fail. He would fully charge his batteries, and within moments, they would be drained. Morris Gross had decided what he was going to do was invite a large, very well-known video company to come in and videotape what they could. And they had installed some very high-end equipment. When they went to go turn on their equipment, every light on the device lit up, something that was not supposed to happen. And it never had until that day. When they tried to record, the tape itself wouldn't work. And after they opened up the equipment, they found that the tape had somehow wound itself underneath the cassette, something that was a one in a million chance of happening. The video group made three separate visits to the house and they recorded over 20 hours of video, but they never caught anything on camera. Now the family by this time had had so many weird things happen to them that it almost started to be normal and they had almost learned to live with it. Almost. Here's what Peggy had to say. I remember one Sunday, I can't remember the date, but I can remember the day, things began falling down and it began about half past seven and kept on until about half past ten until there was nothing left to sit on. The chairs went over, the tables went over, you never know what's going to happen. The doors will open and shut and I was doing some sausage and I had some in the frying pan and some on the grill and sausages would move from the pan to the grill. And these things, they happen so quick, nobody touches anything. It's almost as if someone is standing there with an invisible hand lifting it from one place to the other. Now, Peggy's brother John also said that he had seen things not only in his sister's house, but in his, in his own home as well. On one Sunday, Mrs. Hodgson and her family were at my house and things started happening in the afternoon. We was hearing footsteps upstairs, knocks and bangs. I went upstairs and Mrs. Hodgson and my daughter just in time to see the drawers in her dressing table opening and closing, literally in unison, backwards and forwards. We went to the front bedroom where the wife and I sleep and the curtains had been pulled. Up there I have a 22-inch television and that had revolved around an angle about 45 degrees. After six weeks of having to deal with all of these issues, Peggy Hodgson was exhausted. And because of this, she had caught pneumonia and she had to spend a week in the hospital because of it. 
Two of the children had to be placed in foster care temporarily. One of the children stayed with family and the other, John, was still at school. Now, after their mother had come back and the family was once again together, Janet began to behave strangely. She began to go into what the family called trances. Now, these became so bad and her mom was so concerned that she had Janet visit not one, but four doctors. And each doctor, not helpful at all, gave a different reason to the family for Janet's trances. So by the time that December of 1977 rolls around, is right around Christmas time, this is when the voices in the home began to be heard. They weren't soft. These were deep and gruff, but they weren't disembodied voices. They actually appeared to come from the girls, Margaret and Janet. It was very apparent that whenever these voices were heard and they seemed to come near the girls, the girls weren't speaking, yet there were clear and deep and angry voices coming from around each of the girls. Now, voices in poltergeist cases are rare. When they do occur, they have often been attributed to the devil. Now, both Morris and Guy don't believe any of this at all. And Guy seems to be a little bit more irritated with this idea than Morris was. Here's what Guy had to say. Well, let me make it clear. I've got no time for this devil rubbish. I say it is rubbish because as far as I'm concerned, it's an invention of medieval religious dogmatists. It has no connection with reality. Nothing has ever been demonstrated or proven there are such things. I can well understand if some fanatical exorcist went to the house in Enfield. He would no doubt feel as if he had a whole legion of devils in the house. But I must make it very clear. We've had absolutely no indication at all of any diabolical activity, assuming there would be such a thing. I've no doubt we could have created it if we'd gone in with that sort of medieval attitude. I've read many other cases to earlier cases in the 17th century, where young girls began to talk in this gruff and hoarse voice, and I'm quite certain it was this same phenomenon that was taking place. But I hope that now we've learned to interpret it more realistically. Now, even though it's apparent that Guy has no belief whatsoever that this is a negative spirit, demonic, or what have you, Something that happened during this same time must not have hit his radar. Now, in modern times, it is often believed that only a demonic spirit could know certain things that no one else could possibly know. There's something that happened to Morris Gross. Now, he had been at his place and he was scheduled to meet with the Hodgson's. He went out to start his car. It was very cold outside and it took a little while for it to turn over. Now, after it did though, it seemed to rev up as if someone was pressing on the accelerator. It eventually stopped and he was able to make it to the Hodgson's, but he was late. As he arrived, he apologized to the family for running late when the voice that was now all too common came out from around Janet and said, went too fast. Now, no one else but Morris knew that the accelerator on his car had sped up or went fast. How did the voice know? Now, around this same time, a few things occurred. 
First, their two goldfish were found dead in their tank. Now, the kids took very good care of the fish. They were devastated. The voice then made itself known, saying, I done that. I electrocuted the fish by accident. And when um, Morris asked what kind of electrical energy, the voice said, spirits energy. Then, on Christmas morning, their bird was found dead. Now, that same day, in another bizarre instance, Janet was simply sitting in a chair by the living room window when all of a sudden she let out this cry. The curtain had wrapped itself around her neck and had begun to choke her. In January of 1978, Rosalind is again at the house and has started to record these voices. So Morris Gross, he begins to ask questions of the thing that was in the home. And these are the answers that he received. To rule out that it was the girls doing these voices on their own, a specialist was brought in. Professor John Hasted, a professor of experimental physics of Birkbeck College in London, did some tests on the girls, and he used a device called a laryngograph. This, essentially this thing, is meant to measure and analyze the vibrations of the vocal cords. It shows how your vocal cords are working when you talk or when you sing. And electrodes are placed on the throat in order to get this data. And this data can then be visualized on a screen. Here is what the professor had to say. This deep sort of speech is not unknown. It happens in some cases, I'm told it's called Tourette's syndrome. And one can test by the layer ungograph whether the vocal folds are producing it or whether it's something else, possibly the muscles higher up the neck that are often called the false vocal cords. Well, certainly the larynograph traces showed the false vocal folds were involved. The thing is, what you heard earlier went on well for over an hour. And so, of course, the question would come up as to how possible it was to use these false vocal cords for this extended period of time. When you and I try to make a voice like that and try to do it, we get a sore throat. And this is because the lubrication of those folds is inadequate. But I suppose it's possible to keep it up if the lubrication is rather better. And it certainly seems that this is what is happening. He is then asked if it's possible the girls are using some kind of ventriloquism. Well, no one will ever know because you can't prove what is conscious and what is unconscious. Mind you, I've studied the videotapes of the voices. I've studied the audio tapes. I've been there and seen and heard it going on, and I don't think they're producing it consciously. Maybe they do sometimes, but usually not. But I can't prove that. Now, in the book that I have referenced earlier, both Morris Gross and Guy Playfair do say that they have, in fact, caught the girls faking things. However, here's what Guy had to say. This is not to say that because you catch the child playing a trick once, Therefore, the whole case is a load of fraud. It is not. 
Morris and I have sifted through this colossal mass of material, and at 26 and up to 30 incidents, which we are completely satisfied, and I mean completely, I don't mean I think they're genuine. I am absolutely certain they have no possible physical explanation. If the children involved decide to add a few tricks of their own, this is quite to be expected. This is quite normal. This is not unusual at all. Now, one experiment was tried in the home with Morris Gross, and they, with Janet and her mom agreeing, filled Janet's mouth with water and then taped her mouth shut. Now, while this seems cruel, it was agreed to, and it did actually have the desired effect. Morris then began to ask this thing questions and asked it to say the words bottle of beer, since making B sounds would be impossible for Janet to do at this point. Now, the voice, it still came through loud and clear. The voices started now to identify themselves. Now, one of the voices said he was Bill Wilkins. Now, Bill said that he had lived in the house and that he was still living there, that he was 60 years old and had a dog called Gober the Ghost. Now, this information would actually be later verified by Bill's son, Terry. Another voice identified itself as Joe Watson and that he had lived in the house, but refused to say when. Another voice would identify itself as Fred. Another time, it would claim to be Vic Nottingham's deceased father. But then again, how would the thing know that Vic's father was deceased? All of these voices sounded really similar. And so at one point, they were challenged and the voices were told that they were lying about their name and that they were actually just one entity. A voice then replied and said, they all have different titles. Next, as if things weren't bad enough within the Hodgson household, next came the excrement, for lack of a better term. This excrement was found smeared on the walls in the bathroom. It was behind the toilet. It was in the bathtub. Next, there was a foul-smelling liquid that began to appear all through the house, and no one knew what it was. It was later determined to be cat urine, even though the Hodgson's didn't own a cat. Now, not long after the voices showed up in the home, a crossing guard who helped kids cross the street to the school, there was a school across from the Hodgson's home, happened to be walking past the Hodgson house to the crosswalk where she worked when she noticed something. On the roof, I could see a red cushion and a fairly big one. And I saw the daughter of the house, Margaret, the oldest girl, standing outside. And so I asked her what the cushion was doing on the roof, being nosy. So she said they hadn't got a clue how it had gotten up there because the windows were closed. Because we're standing there, talking, kept looking up at it. All of a sudden, I hear a bang and see a book hit the front bedroom window. And that was followed by a pillow, then a book, then the pillow again. And I stand there looking and all of a sudden I saw the middle girl, Janet, going up and down in front of the window. Well, I thought she was jumping up and down on the bed. But when I looked, she was horizontal, going up and down with her arms and legs going everywhere. I suppose she did this half a dozen times, 
and then she stopped. Then I had to cross over because the children started to come out of the school, but it was frightening. I will say that it did frighten me. I didn't think I would be, but to be truthful, I thought it was all, well, not phony, but, you know, if you don't know anything about anything, especially things like that, you tend to be a bit skeptical. Well, after that, I'm afraid I wasn't skeptical. It did frighten me. Levitation was also witnessed by a delivery driver going by the house. The child appeared to float half around the room at the same time the curtains were blowing into the room as if there were a draft, but the windows were completely closed. So it wasn't a draft from outside that was causing it. So obviously someone on the inside seemed to be drawing the curtains up off the window and the articles and the child appeared to be revolving around the room, you know, clockwise direction. The child banged against the window frame twice and I was frightened. The force that she banged against it, the window frame would have gone. I fully expected her to drop into the road. I was frightened, there's no doubt about it. Now, Professor Hosted, the professor who had done the tests on the vocal cords of the girls, had a student of his in the home, uh, by, a student by the name of David Robertson, who was there studying the activity. Now, the girls had often said that they often felt themselves being pulled, pushed, or thrown by something they couldn't see. Now, David wanted to see if Janet could do this on her own. And so he decided to try an experiment. I took Janet to the top bedroom, where lots of phenomena appeared to happen. This is the front bedroom of the house. And tried to talk to this deep voice that came from near Janet. I asked it if it could lift Janet up into the air, but I could only get a response and I was either out of the room or facing the other direction. So I started off by putting objects on the floor, getting it to throw them about the room, and I could hear the objects moving, but I was outside the room, of course. Anyway, I continued until it agreed to lift Janet up into the air, and more or less just stood by outside, more or less, to make sure she wasn't going to get hurt. Of course, all this time, there have been a group of people outside who have actually witnessed what was happening, so it appears as though she wasn't making it up or anything. But I never did get to see an actual levitation itself, at least the closest I got, was crouching down facing the door, and Janet was very near me and she came over my head onto the floor, but it's impossible to rule out jumping there. But I did see that she didn't leave the room through the door. The beds were very high. It was impossible to bounce in a horizontal position, so it would be visible from the window. Not only did Janet say that she had levitated, but that she had passed through the wall straight into the Nottingham's house next door and then passed back again. In July of 1978, all of this is still going on, but Janet did go into a facility uh, to be tested, and it was a facility for psychiatric care. She was in there for three months. She wasn't in the home, and because everybody thought that Janet was the focal point of the activity, they thought that the activity would stop. It didn't. Margaret, the oldest daughter, had been staying with a friend, John was back at boarding school and Janet was in the hospital. So this just simply left Peggy and Jim, Jimmy, the youngest boy at seven in the house. Now, Jimmy, for some reason, had never been bothered by what was happening. It never seemed to affect him. And whenever something really strange happened, he was able to simply ignore it. However, one night, while it was just Peggy and Jimmy in the house, she began to hear Jimmy moan in his sleep. 
Now, this concerned her because it's something that would happen to Janet just before she ended up in one of her trances. So Peggy was worried, and when the moaning began, Peggy woke up Jimmy. He opened his eyes, and he said he was scared, but he didn't say of what. And as soon as he fell back asleep, the moaning started again, and again Peggy woke him. He then said he was scared to shut his eyes. Peggy then took Jimmy, and they went to her brother's house down the street and slept there for the night. Now, nothing again ever happened with Jimmy, except when John, Peggy's brother, came over one day to check on both of them, he found Jimmy playing with his toys. And he asked Peggy what her night had been like. And she said, so quiet, it's been nerve wracking. He then responded to her saying, well, it's proved one thing, hasn't it? Nothing to do with you two. All of a sudden, the voice was back. But this time, it was coming from Jimmy. And the voice said, why don't you fuck off? When they asked Jimmy what he'd said, he replied with nothing, completely innocent. On another night, Peggy and Jimmy were again staying with her brother when John, her brother, was sent back to the Hodgson's to get an alarm clock. And this is what John said happened. The house was in total darkness. I walked up the stairs to go into the bedroom to collect the clock, and as I got to the door, it opened on its own, wide open to allow me through. What struck me as so fantastic was I saw the knob on the door twist, like somebody was turning it from the other side. This on its own was a bit nerve-wracking, but knowing the house, I sort of shuddered and said, where's the alarm clock? Let's get out. As I walked into the room, the door closed behind me. Wasn't slammed, just like a door closing on its own, I collected the alarm clock, turned around, walked towards the door, and the door handle turned on its own, and the door opened wide enough for me to walk out normally. I trotted down the stairs and shot home. Now, later on, when little Johnny was back home from boarding school for just a little while, he and his mom had gone somewhere, and she happened to notice that his eyes started to roll back into his head. He then fainted. It wasn't long before he came to again, and he said, I feel pins and needles in my arms and legs. Now, this could have been a coincidence, but nothing like this had ever happened until he had arrived back home to the house. So after three months, Janet was released from the hospital after having gone through multiple tests, including intelligence, uh, brain structure, personality, and x-rays, And the doctors all said there was absolutely nothing wrong with her. Janet hadn't been home long before she said that she had just seen a young boy in the kitchen. Margaret and Jimmy had also talked about seeing people, but they had seen a variety of old men in the house. Now with Janet home, the knockings and the chairs and tables falling over started again. But thankfully, it wasn't as bad as before. Now, by 1979, the problems in the Hodgson home seemed to have gone away. The only thing the group, which included Guy and Morris, haven't done is to bring in an exorcist. But we know how Guy feels about this, and evidently Mrs. Hodgson also had her own reasons why she didn't want this to happen herself, so it was never done. 
Now, many believed that this whole entire story was made up so that Peggy and her children could move to a better public housing unit, but they never wanted to, and they never did. As a matter of fact, Peggy herself ended up passing away in the home in 2003. They also never made any money off the story. Janet stayed living in the home until the age of 16 when she left and got married. She has never sought out attention after she left the home, and for her to make a public appearance was very, very rare, although she has done it a few times. Now, in one interview, over 40 years later, she has never wavered from her stance as to what happened to her. She is very soft-spoken, but even speaking about it that many years later, you can see her shaking and in tears, explaining that if she had to go through that again, she believes it would kill her. She believes that it was, in fact, a case of demonic possession. Now, nobody ever, nobody really knows why the activity seemed to cease almost as quickly as it began. There are stories that others who have lived in the same location have experienced something, although definitely not on the scale that the Hodgson's did. So to this day, it kind of remains a little bit unsolved, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Um, if you are interested, though, in learning more about this case, the book that was written by the author, Guy Playfair, is available on Amazon. And the book's name, again, is This House is Haunted, The True Story of the Enfield Poltergeist. So I have a question. What do you think? Was it a real case? Was it all just a hoax? If it was, what do you think the reason was for it? Do you, why do you think that Janet, for instance, was the focus of all the activity? So let me know your thoughts in the comments. Um, YouTube is probably the best place to leave them, but I do read them no matter where they're left. Also, if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen or give it a like or comment on YouTube or again, wherever you subscribe and listen. And lastly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Happy Halloween. I will be back soon with another installment of the Darley Routier case. And until then, stay safe. <laughs>